to minister to us this morning. Father, we lift up our hearts and our voices to you in asking you, Jesus, to speak to us as we read your word, as you preach your word through me, Lord Jesus. I pray that your anointing would be felt, your spirit would be felt, and that there would be a mighty move of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. And for the next 30 minutes or so, I want to speak to you on a subject called the last word. And when I'm done giving the last word, we can join together in family, like family around the altar, and pray together. Um, you'll have an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And you can pray in your seat. That's fine. There's just something special and nice about praying together. So I'll, I'll make an appeal at the end of the message. You can come and pray or pray in your seat. But let's respond to what the Word of the Lord says this morning. Myra Alonzo says it was all the deaths from COVID-19 that inspired her to celebrate her life in a very unusual and unconventional manner. She did so during COVID, which kind of was at the time a bit of a foolish thing to do because we were totally unsure about the extent of the virus and everything that was going on. But she decided, you know, with everything going on, she didn't want to wait to, uh, to have a funeral herself to hear how wonderful people thought of her. Not that she would hear anyway, but... She kind of thought it was unfortunate that all the people that she had been to funerals for couldn't hear all the lovely things that were said about them. Whether they were true or not, it was just nice to hear all these things people were saying. And so in order to hear what people said about her, she decided she would fake her death and attend her own funeral <clears throat> to see what people would say about her. Dressed all in white, she arrived at the funeral in a hearse and was escorted in a rented coffin to the front of the chapel where the service was being held. This is kind of a creepy and macabre thing, but also a little humorous because she actually proceeded to lay in the casket while people walked by and said nice things about her. And what's most impressive was she was able to remain stationary in the coffin and had makeup artists make her look really dead in the coffin as people paid their respects. And they got the uncanny surprise at the end of the funeral to find out that she wasn't actually dead, but she was yet still alive. And uh, it's interesting, all the money she spent, they said, on the funeral, she probably could not afford to die again, so she would now have to live forever. Last words are important, right? What people say at the end of a f someone's life is meaningful, special. If you've ever had the uh, distinct privilege to speak in a funeral and say something at the end of somebody's life, it's, it's both bitter and sweet because with it come the memories, the pleasant, loving, joyful memories that kind of well up together in the fountain of grief and sorrow um, that kind of mix all together and create this unusual experience that make it very memorable. Oftentimes we remember the last thing someone said to us on before they pass away. Someone, you, you know, when someone passes away, um, you, you remember the last thing they said to you, typically, if they were close to you. And, and most of the time, they were casual, uh, passing words, hopefully pleasant ones. Sometimes, unfortunately, there's the regret of a crossword that was said 
before that person passed away. But what makes these words so special is the fact that this person is no longer here. You, you no longer have access to them to either make right something that was said wrong or to say something that you really wanted to say in the end. We become painfully aware of the, the power of our words. And it, and it echoes what the scripture says, that the tongue can bring life and can bring death. And, and those last words that are spoken by someone or to someone are very important. Maybe you've never had that experience, but think of this for a moment. What would you thank someone for before you pass away? Think about how would you, what would you say to somebody? Often when people are stranded at sea and they're, or, or they're in some, some place where they're, they're made painfully aware of their inevitable uh, death, they often write a letter or uh, pass a note on to tell so-and-so I love them. Tell so-and-so I, 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 I cherish them. And, and oh, make sure you, you say I'm sorry to this person. Why? Because last words are important. They carry weight. You want to be known as someone who spoke life and love. And, and the last words that someone remembers about you, you probably want those to be good things. It's interesting how important things become when someone's about to die. Petty squabbles are thrown to the side. Old grudges are quickly forgiven. Uh, debts are paid. And, 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 and it seems like everything becomes crystal clear in the last few moments of life when only the most important things that can be said are said. And while this is somewhat of a downer subject on the beginning end of this message, bear with me, because as you know, Easter is here, so we're going to be talking about this, the death wasn't the end of the story, but put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Put yourselves in the position of Jesus and think about what are some of the last things that I'm going to say to these people before I die. The scripture records in four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, seven things that Jesus said on the cross as he died. Seven things that he said. Now, Jesus had the unusual privilege of knowing that he was about to go, knowing that his time was appointed. And so, no doubt, he had taken the time to think about what he was going to say. He had planned it out. And, and, and all seven things that Jesus said point us to something very important. You have to understand that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And he, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. I want you to know, while Jesus was going through the cross, the reason he was able to speak these seven very powerful statements and phrases and, and, and special things was because there was something on the other side of the cross that he was looking to. There was a light, if you will, at the end of the tunnel. There was joy that was set before him that helped him to endure the cross and keep his perspective clear. The first thing that we come up to what Jesus said, and I, I tried to find the timeline. What was the first thing he said and what was the last? I know the last thing he said, but I'm not too sure how they all, all play out. I can make an educated guess. So this is my best 
guess at the order of things Jesus said while he was being crucified on the cross. By the way, crucifixion, not to get too detailed about it, you can do your own research on it if you want to know how painful and terrible it was, but it is listed as one of the most painful ways to die. Often people that die by crucifixion do not die from the wounds inflicted to their hands, their feet, or their back, but they often die from asphyxiation, where the position of the cross and the way it does is it causes your chest to collapse in on itself and make it very difficult to breathe. And every time you want to breathe, you have to push down on your feet, get up, take a breath, and go back down again. And that slow, painful death of of dying by asphyxiation is what eventually becomes the end of most soldiers, or I'm sorry, most criminals on the cross. So imagine all of this pain, pain in hands, pain in feet, pain on the back, pain in the head, pain everywhere in your body, pain to take a breath. Everything was laborious and difficult, and it took somewhere between the vicinity of 9 to 12 hours of suffering. Among the first few hours of his crucifixion, Jesus looks down from the cross and notices that there's not very many of his friends nearby. There is only a small handful. Most of the people surrounding him at the foot of the cross are his enemies, are his his antagonizers, are the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees that have come to witness his death, are the Roman soldiers administering this capital punishment. And there are a handful of small loyal followers there at the foot of the cross. Mary Magdalene was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was there. And so no doubt Jesus looks down through his bloodshot eyes and sees his mother, who uh, any mother in the room cannot think about this story too long without having the anxiety and the pain well up in her own chest Imagining the pain of Mary as she watched her son die a slow and painful death. And so John chapter 19 records that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Why did Jesus do this? What was so significant? Why is this an important thing? And it highlights something that, that while Jesus was on an eternal mission, he was doing something very important in, in light of his, his uh, rise to the king of the universe and the king of the world. Jesus was establishing his kingdom by dying a painful death on the cross. And while he's in the middle of doing this very important thing that he himself did not want to do and prayed that it might be removed from him, but he submitted to the will of God and the plan of God for the salvation of the world. And in the middle of his agonizing battle with his own will on the cross, he looks down and he looks after the welfare of his own mother. I often wondered, why did he call Mary woman? I don't think I would have gotten very far in life had I adopted that name or title for my own mother. I'm pretty sure my existence would have been shortened by many years had I ever called my mother woman. But I suspect that Jesus called Mary woman here to spare her the grief of seeing this 
unrecognizable figure call out the name of mother. You can imagine any child when they scrape their knee, often they call out for mom. They often call out for the care of mother. So perhaps, and as this is only conjecture, this is not, you know, this is not exegesis. I'm not pulling anything out of the text. I'm inserting something here, okay? Uh, it's just a sus suspect. It's just a, a casual observance. But perhaps he was trying to spare her the agony of hearing the word mother come from his parched and bleeding mouth. Jesus spared Mary that pain. But more important than that, Jesus looks after the welfare of his mother. And so some have, have highlighted that Jesus in his ministry said things like, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be his disciple. And, and so one might look at that and see, well, Jesus wants me to abandon my family. Yet while Jesus was on the cross, he looked out for the welfare of his own mother. So you have to read the whole Bible in context. Well, what Jesus is really saying in Luke, 9, uh, Luke 14 is, don't let your family hold you back from doing what God wants you to do. And, and you've, got to, you've got to love God more than family. You've got to, if your family is saying, no, you know what, I want you to stay back. You're, you're not, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. But you know, according to the word of God, this is exactly what you need to be doing. Jesus says, you have to love me enough to leave them aside and do what God is calling you to do. But that does not mean you cannot still look out for them and care for them and love for them because while Jesus was on the cross, he did something very important. One of his last words was to take care of the welfare of his mother. The next thing that we see Jesus saying in, in his agonizing struggle on the cross, he turns to two other men who were crucified alongside of him. The Bible records in Luke chapter 23 that there were two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus. He was in the center and they were crucified on either side of him. And the Bible says one of the criminals who were hanging railed on him and said, Are you not the Christ? Are you not the Messiah? Then save yourself and us. Now, what, what is this that this guy is saying? Save yourself and us. If you know the history of this time, there was a group of people called zealots. They were often extremists, Jewish extremists, that were trying to fight against the Roman oppression. And for some of them, they followed Jesus. Judas Iscariot was one of them. Uh, Simon the zealot was another. They were extremists, and they thought that Jesus was going to come in and and kind of overthrow the Roman government. So here, this criminal, he's no doubt committed murder. He's no doubt done something worthy of capital punishment. But he did it in light of no doubt trying to free his people from Roman oppression. Well, that, oh, that gained him a place on the cross. Maybe he was caught for thievery. Or some other way, maybe like a Robin Hood figure. You know, trying to steal from the rich and give to the poor type thing. But for whatever case, he is there now on the cross with Jesus. And the Bible says, he railed on Jesus. Are you not the Messiah? Are you not the one who's supposed to liberate us from the oppression from Rome? Save yourself and us. You can do it, Jesus. Call down the angels from heaven. Do everything and make it known that you are God and that you are going to rescue your people. Save us from this oppression. But the other rebuked him. On one side, the guy on the left, 
is crying out to Jesus, get yourself off the cross and take me with you. The guy on the right is doing what hopefully most of us do when we come face to face with death as we begin to look inside and say, I'm, I need to get right with God. And he said, do not fear God. Are you not under some same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This tells a story without explaining all the details. Both these men followed Jesus from a distance. Both these men observed his life and pattern and his message. The one on the left railed on Jesus for not doing what he expected him to do as Messiah. The one on the right watched Jesus carefully and closely. And every time he was attacked by the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Je Jesus never raised his voice. Jesus never said a cross word. He never lost his cool. He did everything right. He tended to the needs of the poor, to the lepers, to the widows, to the orphans, to the ones. He was doing everything the Bible commanded them to do. And this man respected Jesus. And when he was put on the cross himself, he looked at Jesus with a repentance in his heart, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know if he knew everything of what he was saying. I don't know if he understood every, every uh, implication he was making, but he recognized that Jesus, just because he was dying on a cross, it didn't mean it was the end of his kingdom, but somehow the man on the right knew that if Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, then perhaps he would raise himself from the dead and in a feat of power destroy the yoke of death. Maybe he reasoned in his mind that this man in the middle, this one, is the bridge between me and God. Maybe this is not just a man, a mere mortal man, but perhaps this is indeed the son of the living God. And so he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, in every, you have to understand, every time he breathed, he had to push down on the nails in his feet, pushing himself up to catch a breath. So in order to just speak a word or a sentence, Jesus had to endure excruciating pain in the feet as he pressed on the nails to reach a breath and say, Truly I say unto you this day, you will be with me in paradise. In his final words, Jesus reached for the lost. In his final words, Jesus forgave the sins of a man who repented the best way he knew how. Jesus demonstrated in his suffering that he could reach for the lost despite the pain that he was experiencing in his own body. What is Jesus showing us through this act on the cross? Uh, in one of the last things Jesus said, he was showing us uh, that personal pain and discomfort does not excuse us from reaching the lost uh, and touching a soul who is hungry for God. But it also doesn't mean you have to go and argue with the one who doesn't agree with you. Notice Jesus doesn't speak to the man railing on him and accusing him, but Jesus turns all of his attention to the one who is repentant 
repenting and hungry. Jesus is showing us that we cannot allow personal pain to excuse us from doing what God is wanting us to do. Yes, there may be pain in your life. Yes, there may be struggle. Yes, there may be adversity that might want to keep you and hold you back from doing the will of God. But if you'll take a page out of Jesus' notebook this morning, one of the last things he says, one of the most important things he's, he's showing us is that just because we're going through something, just because it's difficult, just because the way is unclear and the situation is hard and painful, that does not excuse us from doing the will of God. Jesus, his next statement that he says is very powerful. Luke 23 the Bible says, when they came to the place that is called the skull there, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, as they are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Bible says they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus prays this powerful prayer in the midst of his pain. Remember, every word spoken requires him to push down on the nails in his feet to gain a breath. And with his painful, gurgling voice, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A normal response to pain is perhaps to curse or to swear, to plead or to bargain, to weep, to threaten, to insult, to rail, to, to say nothing and just give in to the pain and the suffering. But Jesus, through the pain-clenched teeth, utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. With his dying breath, Jesus is showing us again the power of those words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Many people take this phrase and say, see, Jesus is forgiving people while they're crucifying him. So I guess that means I need to forgive someone even if they're crucifying me, if they, even if they go to the extent of putting me on a cross, then Jesus expects me to, uh, to forgive them. Notice this is a misinterpretation of the scripture. Jesus is not forgiving those who crucified him. We cannot read into the text what is not there. Jesus did not say, Father, I forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's not what he said. He prayed a prayer, Father, forgive them. Nobody is forgiven unless they repent. And the Bible even takes it a step further that true forgiveness and remission of sin does not come until one is baptized in the name of Jesus according to Acts 2.38 for the forgiveness and remission of their sins. The final step of forgiveness where the sins are blotted out and the blood of Jesus covers them and obliterates them for all of eternity does not happen until one is baptized. So you cannot be forgiven unless you first repent. So Jesus was not forgiving those who were crucifying him, but he was living out the thing that he preached to his disciples at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 5, verse 44. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus was not forgiving those on the cross, but he was praying for them to be forgiven. And in this final step, with this painful utterance of his last words, Jesus demonstrates us the power of prayer. Because 
because he shows us that while he is suffering to the extent that every word spoken comes with pain in his hands and feet as he pulls his body up to catch a breath to speak these words, uh, he shows us that it's worth the pain to pray for your enemy. It's worth the pain you have to go through to get those words out of your mouth. Uh, despite how much hatred is in your heart uh, and bitterness is in your soul, if you can find the grace that God gives you to utter a simple prayer, God, would you forgive this person that has hurt me and is hurting me today? God, would you reach down and touch them and help them to see the error of their way? God, what you can pray for the enemy that has hurt you, for the dad that has abandoned you, for the situation that has left you hurting and painful, for the for the, the, the love relationship that ended poorly, for the, for the difficult circumstances between your co-worker or your neighbor, for the hurtful things your mom said to you or your aunt or your uncle, for the unspeakable pain that was caused to you at an early age uh, by someone who took advantage of you. Uh, those things are unspeakable and difficult and painful and probably equivalent to being crucified on a cross. Uh, and it would be very much like the same to say that those painful things that people go through in life. Uh, but Jesus did not excuse uh, any of us from praying a simple prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you might take up offense with that and say, but pastor, they knew exactly what they were doing when they did this and when they did that. And may I submit to you that that might be true, that might be possible, but most people respond out of pain and their own pain causes them to cause pain in other people. So in a sense, someone may not know fully what they are doing. They may not have the full extent or the knowledge. It's, it's, it's common among psychology books and I've read a few on forgiveness and, and some of the, the leading psychologists in these fields have said and, and made statements like it, there is very few sadistic people in the world, truly sadistic people that are, have, have become so deprived and so depraved in their mental, their mental health that they actually seek to inflict pain on people. There, there's not very many out there in the world. There are those who do it, but most people cause pain from their own pain, from their own destruction and dysfunction in their life. And what Jesus recognized, these soldiers that are nailing me to the cross don't fully know the extent of what they're doing. They don't have a full grasp on the consequences of their actions. They don't, they're doing what they're told. They're doing what they're brainwashed to do. They're doing what they were raised to do. Maybe they didn't have the education or the upbringing to bring them into a sense of morality of right and wrong of what they're doing. Not excusing their behavior. So he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'll submit to you that Jesus' prayer was answered 50 days later when the Bible says 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost were added to the church that day. That was a collection of people that no doubt were Jews that had said crucify him 50 days prior. That had said send him to the crucifixion hill. Send him to that hill called Golgotha and nail him to the cross because he's not our Messiah. And yet 50 days later, 3,000 of those people find a place of repentance. And the same Jesus who was crucified on the cross takes up residence in their heart as they are filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in his name. What are you preaching this morning? I'm preaching that sometimes the best thing you can pray for your enemy is that they will find a place of forgiveness with God.
the best thing you can do for someone who's hurt you is to pray that they will find repentance, which means they have to come to terms with what they did to you and what they're doing to others. Jesus, in his last words, highlights the power of prayer and the power of a heart that seeks for the welfare of his enemy. This was not easy. And by the way, I preached this with some kind of a passion and, and tone in my voice as though it's an easy thing to do. Please, it's not an easy thing to do. It's about as easy as Jesus being crucified on the cross. Jesus did say that if you're going to follow him, you've got to also take up your cross. There's got to be a place in your life where you finally go, okay, God, the way I'm doing it isn't working. And I've got to surrender to your way to pray for those who hurt me. Jesus prays another prayer or says another thing on, on the cross. He said in Mark 15, verse 33, And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't have the time to go into this, but there is so much here. So I'll leave you with what Jesus is really doing. Some think and have questioned if Jesus is God, why is he praying? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was God forsaking Jesus on the cross? Was Jesus being, if he's God, how is this working? Is he praying to himself? Is his spirit leaving? What, what is going on? And what we don't understand is that Jews from a very young age were taught to memorize large portions of Scripture. And many of them could quote the Psalms on a heartbeat like this. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing. And you'll forgive Jesus. He didn't have enough energy to quote the entire thing. Psalms 22 is roughly 31 verses long. That would have been a lot for anybody to quote under pain and with every breath having to push down on nails. So you understand why Jesus would only quote one of the first verses of Psalms 22. But what Jesus was doing was quoting scripture. In his last final words, Jesus was, as a man, yes, uttering a prayer of help, but he was also pointing his disciples and every other Jewish scholar to a point in Scripture that prophesied of the Messiah. I believe what Jesus was doing more than praying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And surely he felt forsaken of the, of the Father. He felt forsaken of God for sure in that moment because he was bearing on his shoulders the weight of all of humanity's sin. So he felt the painful effects. In fact, I would submit to you that Jesus was experiencing what hell will be exactly like. The Bible does not give us a ton of detail about hell. There is some indications of how terrible it will be. But one of the things we're clear of, and one of the things that is for sure and put in all of the illustrations of what hell will be like, but hell, the worst part about hell will not be fire, it will not be the torment, but it will be the separation of you from an eternal God. You need to understand that every sunrise, when the sun 
sunlight caresses the cheeks of your face and you feel the warmth of that sunlight, that is the hand of God reaching down to touch you, to let you know I'm there. When you hear the beauty of a bird sing in the tree, it's the voice of God in the bird that reminds you he created it and it's there to let you know the sun has risen and there is another day and there's breath in your lungs and there's life today and you have a chance to make things right in your life. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from God. Everything good in your life, everything you enjoy, the food that you enjoy to eat in the day is a gift from God. Everything you have comes from God and is a reminder that a God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. And so what Jesus was experiencing on the cross was the eternal separation of God from man. He was experiencing hell so that I did not have to do it myself. He went through the pit of the shadow of death so I don't have to go there. What was he doing on the cross? He was experiencing this, but ultimately he was pointing us to a scripture in Psalm 22 that the psalmist David writes, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Psalm 22 verse 1. Why are you so away, far away when I groan for help? When he, he continues on and laments the, the struggles of his life and that he was diff having difficulty from his, his birth and God delivered him safely from his mother's womb and placed him in his hands. But now his enemies surround me. Listen to what David says in Psalm 22 and hear the parallel to what is going on around Jesus. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. Verse 14, my life is poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. Literally, when you hung on the cross, it would dislocate your shoulder sockets. It would dislocate your hips and your knees, and everything about it was painful. There was bones that popped out of joint from the strain of the cross. And then he said, my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. That the, the medical science points to the fact that Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was bleeding from his pores. He was sweating great drops of blood. That his heart had actually ruptured. There was something in his heart that had broken open, causing him to sweat through his blood, through his pores. And so Jesus actually died of a broken heart. before he. That's why he died before the soldiers could get to him. Because his heart had ruptured within his chest hours before when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and so here in the Psalms he's saying my heart is like wax uh, melting within me literally his heart was, was hemorrhaging blood all throughout his body my strength has dried up like a sunbank clay my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth remember when Jesus uttered the words I thirst that was a fulfillment of prophecy that he would be thirsty at the time of his death and here it is verse 16 they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Literally, this was what was going on at the feet of Jesus. What was Jesus doing? I think it was twofold. He was experiencing the pain of the cross, but he was also throwing a little bone to the Pharisees who were standing close by him. They would have heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they would have instantly known Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22. And their mind would have instantly, without them being able to control it, cataloged down to verse number 16 where they pierced his hands and feet. And they, they divided my garments among them and threw 
thrown dice for my clothing. No doubt the Pharisees and the scribes and the followers of Jesus who knew the scripture looked down and said, Jesus is prophesying. He is fulfilling the prophecies of Messiah as we speak. Jesus showed us that he lived by the word of God and he died by the word of God. And the final things that Jesus said while he was on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit, was also another psalm, by the way. Psalm 31, verse 5. And then he said these words, it is finished. And the Bible says he gave up the ghost. This is a powerful statement. Because when he said the words, it is finished, something happened inside the temple that was monumental. You may not know this, but the temple had this giant veil, an enormous, thick veil that blocked passage into the most holy place where the presence of God was said to be. And when Jesus said the words, it was finished, the supernatural hands of God took hold of that veil and ripped it open from the top right down to the bottom. And the, the priests in the temple were, were, were scared because what had never happened before in their life, the Ark of the Covenant was open and exposed to whoever was able to come in to the temple. And this doesn't mean a whole lot to us in the West, but when you study the Word of God, you find out that God didn't let anybody go into the place called the Holiest of Holies. There was only one person allowed to go in, and he was called the High Priest. And the High Priest was alive for roughly about 50 years before he was exited out of his position, and he appointed another High Priest by prayer and fasting, and he picked one person, so only one person per generation went into the Holy place to see God and to talk to him face to face and what Jesus did when he said it was finished the Bible says he ripped open the doors of the temple to whosoever will and Hebrews tells us that Jesus has made a way for us to come boldly before the throne of God I don't have to go through a priest I don't have to confess in a booth to some priest behind a curtain I don't have to talk to somebody and confess my sins the Bible says I can walk boldly into the presence of God because when Jesus died on the cross, uh, he said it was finished. The price has been paid. Everything is taken care of. All you have to do now is walk into God's presence and you can find grace you can find mercy you can find forgiveness what Jesus did on the cross was finish the work so that we could enter into his presence can we thank him for that this morning hallelujah thank you Jesus thank you Jesus I close with this statement. Jesus did not fake his funeral. Unlike Myra Alonzo, Jesus did not fake his funeral just to see who would come and stand at the cross and find out who his loyal followers were. No, Jesus paid the price for the sins of mankind. And I'll leave you with this. Mark 16, verse 9, what we celebrate today. After Jesus rose on the, from the dead, Early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven 
demons. The first person to see Jesus alive was a former harlot and woman of the red quarter. The first person allowed to witness the Jesus of the Bible who rose from the dead in victory was a woman who was not only from the red quarter but was so deep in sin she was literally possessed with seven demonic spirits that Jesus had cast out of her life. The first person to hear the words of Jesus from his resurrected mouth was a woman of ill repute. And the first thing Jesus said to her when he was alive, we talked about the last things he said, but for the next few weeks we're going to talk about the first things that he said after he was alive. Because Easter is not just a day, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of resurrection. Jesus did not stay dead. He did not stay in the tomb. But he rose from the dead. And he said a few things to her. But the thing that caught her attention was he called her by name. The thing she, Jesus said a few things to her before. He said, dear woman, why are you crying? Showing that he cared about her tears. And then he said, who are you searching for? Who are you looking for? And the Bible says she perceived that this was the gardener who was just tending the gardens in the tomb. But when Jesus said Mary, the Bible says that Mary cried out, Rabboni, or Rabbi, you are the master, you are Jesus. Because no doubt the psalm, or the, the prophecy of Isaiah that said, Oh, listen, Jacob, the Lord who created you, O Israel, the first one who forms you, says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And Mary knew that voice when he called her by name. He had said many things on the cross as he died but there was nothing more special to her than when Jesus called her by name and she recognized that he was not dead but he was alive and his first words to her were to call her by name I would submit to you this morning that the cross means a lot of things to us and a lot of things hopefully it can mean in your life. But the most meaningful thing that you could ever have happened to you is to hear the voice of Jesus call you by name. Jesus isn't dead anymore. And while we talked about the things that he said on the cross because they're powerful and they have meaning, the most meaningful thing for you this morning I'll submit to you is for you to hear and tune your your, your spiritual ear to the voice of the Spirit of Jesus as He calls each and every one of you by name. And while we take a few moments, I wonder if you would respond to Jesus calling you by name.